You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rahim, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Sheftiah, 372. The sons of Parosh. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God, to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Let's pray together. We thank you for your holiness, that you are righteous and glorious, 
supreme and sovereign over all. And so we come now as your people in thanks of you, seeking you, asking that your spirit would come like a rushing wind, that we might celebrate and see you. As we begin this new season and open up this new book, we pray, Lord God, that you would move in our hearts and our minds and indeed in this church, that we'd be a people set apart for you. We pray this for our good. We pray this for the good of this nation. We pray this for your glory and commit ourselves to you in the precious name of Jesus. And all of God's people said with one super loud voice, Amen, amen. City on a hill, you may take a seat. Let's put our hands together. Thank the Lord for Trish and the band. Love you guys. Thank you for leading us so very well. And thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And indeed, I want to give thanks to the Lord for His great hand of grace at work over the Easter weekend. Uh, by God's grace, across all of our churches, we had 34 services over Easter weekend. And across our churches, 30 men and women entered the waters of baptism, which is just incredibly uh, exciting and encouraging to see. Uh, we welcomed over 1,300 people online who joined our online services. In addition, uh, we welcomed upwards of 4,000 people across our Easter weekend. That's together upwards of 5,000 people coming together uh, to celebrate that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And as part of that, uh, we saw people online and in person giving their life to Jesus for the very first time. And by by God's grace, can you believe it? We got to celebrate with Joel and Emma Deacon with the planting of our most recent church in Wollongong. Can we thank the Lord uh, for them? talking with Joel this week, and uh, he shared with me these words. He said, as a team, we've been praying that we would be a people of love and a people of prayer. And looking around on Sunday, I saw all our launch team connecting with people and doing so with joy. We had non-believing friends and family come to support us and hear the gospel. And by God's grace, we end up packing out our worship space so that we ran out of chairs. We had a party celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and the launch of a new church, a day we will never forget. Praise God. Yeah. Can we thank the Lord once more for that? Well, today uh, we begin a new series, be, uh, Rebuild. Um, we're going to be spending the next 10 to 12 weeks, I think it's 12 weeks, uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is a testimony of God's hand of grace in rescuing delivering his people Israel from exile in Babylon, bringing them to Jerusalem and establishing them as a city on a hill. In Ezra chapters 1 through to 7, we're going to see the first wave of the Israelites returning to their homeland and rebuilding the temple. In Ezra 8 through to 10, we then have the renewal of God's word and the establishment of God's community and then we come to Nehemiah, uh, which may just be Donald Trump's uh, favorite part of the Bible, as the people of God rally together to build a wall. I must confess that when uh, Reverend Robert Jeffress stood up at the White House and prayed for Donald Trump at his inauguration and likened Donald Trump to God's builder, Nehemiah, I, I choked on my wheat bix and wondered if we'll ever be able to speak from this part of the Bible again. Uh, so let's just be clear, 
when it comes to Nehemiah and Donald Trump, uh, uh, there's no comparison. The, the differences are huge, right? Believe me, right? Uh, gee, my impersonations are terrible. I have some gifts. That is not one. <laughs> come on, come on. All right. <laughs> Let's be said. Let, me, let it be said. Ezra and Nehemiah is still very much God's word, right? Written to a particular people at a particular time and place, but very much God's word that is living, it's active, uh, and it speaks to us quite profoundly and personally today. You know, when you consider this cultural moment uh, that we are in and the significance of the past few years, we're going to see that the book of, of Ezra and Nehemiah are not just timeless, but incredibly timely. You know, thanks to COVID and a myriad of other challenges, uh, we, along with the world around us, uh, have experienced rapid change and a global disruption. There's been separation and grief. There's been so much frustration and loss. We each in our own way lost time with friends and family. We lost opportunities in our education and our careers. People lost their identity and their sense of purpose. Some even lost their faith in God. But this year marks a new season. In 2022, we're now coming out from the rubble of the past few years. And as we make our way through that rubble, there's a call for us all to be part of the renewal. Right? As we learn from, from the past, we are now setting our eyes on a new and Lord willing, a brighter and better future. And there's a call in this moment for us all to roll our sleeves and work together to be part of the rebuild. And City on a Hill, this is why I'm so thankful for this opportunity to be in God's Word and to journey with you in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you have a Bible handy, I'd love you to come with me uh, to the book of Ezra in our reading in chapter 1. Uh, three calls today for our church. First, it's important to say that the rebuild begins with God. Where does the rebuild begin? It begins with God. So look to verse 1. Ezra says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus, says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, to recognize the wonder of this opening chapter, we really need to recognize what it is that has built to this moment in history. So at the turn of the 6th century BC, Babylon is this growing monstrous empire that is revered and feared by all. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is not only leading his people in this advanced season of prosperity and growth, but he is seeking to take advantage of the surrounding nations. And about this time, the king of Judah makes an alliance with Egypt. And this infuriates the Babylonian king, 
and instigates the first of a series of military attacks. Right? So in 50, 597 BC, the first wave of attack, they surround the city of Jerusalem in a military siege. Right? Now in ancient warfare, what an army like Babylon would do is they would lay camp around the city. And they would stay there, sometimes months, even years, suffocating people inside. They not only could escape, they couldn't escape, right? But they had no access to, to food or, or water, right? And so, so like a python kind of suffocating its prey, so Babylon laid siege to, this, to, to Jerusalem before landing its killer blow. And you can read about this in, in the books of Chronicles, Kings, and, and Jeremiah. We're told that after laying siege, Nebuchadnezzar then just storms the gates. He binds the king of Judah, takes him back to Babylon. They then rob the city. Uh, they empty the temple of its artifacts. And, and they take members of the nobility, such as Daniel, which we read about elsewhere in the Bible. They take him and a bunch of others all the way to Babylon. Right. Uh, once the city was secured, Nebuchadnezzar then installs a puppet king over Judah, uh, a man named Zedekiah. But in the end, one of the things we read is that Zedekiah decided to rebel against Babylon. And this infuriates the Babylonian empire once more and prompts a very severe attack. Right. So in 589 BC, the empire lays siege one more time, only this time they're ruthless. Instead of preserving the city over a series of months and then years, they bring the city to dust. They kill thousands of innocent people and deport most of the city's inhabitants to Babylon. The city itself is destroyed. The great temple of Solomon is burned to the ground. And we need to appreciate that in Babylon, the people of God were not only cut off from their homeland, but forced into a program of assimilation and conversion. In the story of Daniel, for example, we see that he was required to eat their food, wear their clothes, and participate in their local customs. He was enlisted in their university and taught their worldview. Uh, such was the extent of their assimilation that Daniel and his Jewish friends were given new names, right? So in our culture, we choose names, don't we, based on popularity or what people think is cool, right? It's why people are confused by my name. I've lost, I've lost count of the people who say to me, is Guy your real name? In fact, uh, just the other day, I was at Axel Coffee, you know, a bunch of us go there after church, and the waitress comes up to me and she explained that, the lo that last time I left without paying, she goes, you left without paying? And I said, oh, really? She goes, yeah, yeah I've got the docket here. You ordered uh, poached eggs on toast uh, and feta. I said, oh, that's strange because I never order toast and I hate feta, right? And she's like, no, no, it says here. Oh, hang on. A guy left without paying. <laughs> Not guy left. Okay. Great to have a name that's basically a placeholder. But in the ancient world, Names carried significant meaning. It spoke to your tradition, your family, your heritage, and indeed your God. The Babylonians renamed Hananiah Shadrach, which means the command of the moon god. Azariah they called Abednego, which means the son of Marduk. And what did they call Daniel? Right? Daniel means the Lord our judge. What did they call him? 
Belteshazzar, which means may the goddess protect the king. So you see what's going on here. The people of Israel not only lost their home, they lost their identity. And while it may have been tempting for them to point the finger of blame, one of the things you need to appreciate is that at this time in history, Israel had very much succumbed to their own idolatry and disobedience. Right? They were a people who, who, who dishonored God, and, and, and the prophets of the Old Testament had warned Israel about their idolatry. They had warned them about their disobedience and the consequence of their ongoing sin. Right? They're told that if you keep bowing down to idols, the Lord will hand you over. But Israel rejected the prophets. Israel hardened their heart. Israel continued to run in corruption and violence and idolatry and sin. The Lord says in Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God is the fountain of living water. And yet in sin, they drank from the water you find in a pit toilet. That's what sin is. Listen, sin isn't just breaking a few rules or commands. It's drinking from the toilet bowl. Whether we cheat on our taxes, lie to a friend, whether you're looking at porn or lash out at someone on social media, you're not just forsaking the font of every blessing, you are drinking from toilet water. And is God indifferent to our sin? Does he look at Israel and say, well, boys will be boys or girls will be girls? No. God is holy and God is just. And so in response to Israel's ongoing violence, lust and Sin, he raises up their enemies and God hands them over to their gods. Do you know how long Israel remained in exile? 70 years. 70 years in a foreign land. 70 years of spiritual distance and decay. 70 years of darkness and laments in Babylon. By show of hands, how many of you remember the 70s songs by the rivers of Babylon? Oh, a lot of hands, right? It's, it's this reggae, upbeat, you know, drums and sounds and colorful outfits and waving and singing. Just so you know, when it came to Israel, there was no singing. There was no waving around and celebration. Right? Listen to the lament in the psalm. As they think about Zion, the hill, their home in Jerusalem, hear their, their trauma, their grief. The writer says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? 
Israel could not sing. Israel was lost, alone. Israel was unsure if they'd ever make it through. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you found yourself in that place of lament. Maybe you have found yourself by that river. I have. And it's right to lament. The Bible gives voice to the distance we feel and the longings we have and the frustrations we experience and the grief we are walking through. The Bible gives voice to that pain. But here is where you and I can find great comfort and great hope. Because the story of Ezra reveals that God never gives up on his promise. He never gives up on his people. He has and will always be faithful. Look again at this opening verse. Ezra says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be what? Fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So what happened after those 70 years in exile? God remembered his people. And in remembering his people, he raises up a Persian king to bring Babylon down to its knees. And what Ezra is so eager to point out is that the Lord not only stirs the heart of this pagan king, but did so that his word might be fulfilled. Jeremiah 29, here was the promise that the Lord gave to his people in exile. He said, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. How precious is that? I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. How many of you know this promise is good news? Sadly, a verse like that, if we keep it up, it's just so easily cheapened, isn't it? Becomes this cheap, superficial message that we plaster on, I don't know, Kurong posters, and it becomes about us and our health and, and our wealth and all these things. Listen, the vision here for Israel is so rich and beautiful. The word prosper is the Hebrew word shalom. It's incredible, rich, rich world and word, and it speaks of wholeness. It speaks of fullness. It's, it's a vision here for restoration and renewal. And while there is some distance between the story of Israel and ours today, I want you to read this and take comfort and hope because we worship a God who promises to rescue his people, 
We worship a God who declares that while hardship is real and suffering can be enduring, He has a plan for your life and it is good. God won't leave Israel by the rivers of Babylon forever. He loves His people and He comes to bring restoration. He comes to bring renewal. And this leads to the second observation. The rebuild starts with God. That's number one. Number two, the rebuild requires a reordering of your life and loves. So in verse two, the king of Persia stands up and he stands before his empire. And I want you to note what he says. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." This marks a significant moment in the fulfillment of God's promise and the shalom that he wants for his people. Not only is the king opening the gates of the exiles to return to Jerusalem, but the Lord has stirred the heart of the king. And there is this God-ordained desire to rebuild, to work with God's people, to rebuild the temple. Now, I don't know if you've been tracking the cost of timber these days, but this ain't going to be cheap, right? This is going to be expensive. And yet here is a pagan king gifting a foreign people with silver and gold and everything else that is required to build this temple. And I love that. I love the reminder here in the sovereignty of God that there is no obstacle too big for him. He can move and will and work however he pleases. Here he is working in the heart of a pagan king to open the doors to let his people go. And I want you to note here that this call to rebuild the temple is not only generous, but spiritually significant. Throughout the Bible, the temple was always established with a vision to stand as a visible sign of God's presence and blessing. Everything about the temple served to help people, Israel, learn about their God, experience and encounter their God. Everything about the temple, the inner, the outer courts, the the holy of holies, the temple, the sacrifices, even the, the material they used were helping God's people to understand that God is holy, to see that God is righteous, to remember that God is loving, right? It was there to remind them that God is, is Lord over all. And this is why the book of Ezra is so insightful. Because of all the Lord decrees, when it comes to the rebuild, 
when it comes to the reordering of Israel's life and love, where does he begin? He starts first with the temple. Think about that. It would have made sense to start by securing the perimeter or building their homes or establishing their farms and trade routes. But here, God stirs the heart of the king and his people, saying, before anything else, I want you to rebuild my house. I want you to put first my presence. I want you to put first my teaching. I want you to put first my sacrifices and my thanksgiving. You are to put away all of the idols that have snared you. And you are to center your life first and foremost on the one true God. And isn't it here that we see Ezra pointing us so clearly, so vividly to the promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, like Israel, we too found ourselves enslaved to sin. Like Israel, we too had forsaken the fountain of every blessing. And in slavery to sin, you and me, we needed a saviour. But the good news of the gospel is that God has not forsaken his promise nor his people. Just as God rescues Israel out from Babylon, so in Jesus, God has come to rescue you and me. And what is the goal of the gospel? Is it deliverance from exile? Is it a freeing from idolatry and sin? Yes, But in Jesus, we see that God not only wants to remove the idols of our heart, he wants to replace them with his love. He wants to reorder your life and my life around him. Listen to Colossians 1. The Spirit of God says, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything might be preeminent, or he might be preeminent, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus, listen, is the fulfillment, the perfect fulfillment of God's rescue. He is the true, better, and perfect temple. He is our renewal. Jesus is God's restoration and rescue. And just as God called Israel to put first, to build first the temple, so Jesus must be first in our life. He must be your highest priority. He must be preeminent. He must be central. Jesus must be first. Now listen in, after two years of lockdown, We know what it's like to have everything taken away, right? 
We lost so much. And right now, the world around us is emerging from the rubble, and there is a very real need, a very real scramble to rebuild. But the big question for you and me in the midst of this rebuild is what will you rebuild first? What will have your highest priority? The world is going to say, build first your career. The world says, first, establish your financial security. The world says, build this or go and do that, right? And on and on we could go. But you who are in Christ are not of this world. You are a city on a hill. And a city on a hill isn't built on the things of this world, but established in, around, and for God. Jesus did not say, seek first your wealth and prosperity. Jesus did not say, seek first your career and family. What did Jesus say? He said, seek first the kingdom of God. There must be in your heart and in your mind each day a resolve to seek God and pursue Him first. First is not in order or a list. It's not Jesus first, then your family relationships, and then your work. Right? Jesus is not one among a list of other priorities. Jesus is saying we are to seek him first in all of our life. Now, that's not to say you don't have interest in your work or your study or your family or your travel or your friends. It's to say that Jesus should guide and govern all things. You're to seek God first in your relationships. You're to put Jesus first when it comes to your career and your study. He is to be first in your church in your community. He is to be first in all. Some of us are great, aren't we, when it comes to seeking God first, when it comes to perhaps reading our Bible or taking hold of His truth. But when it comes to prayer or dependence upon His power, God is nowhere to be seen. Some of us are great at seeking God when it comes to our commitment to justice. We love those passages of Scripture and are eager to extend a hand of care and compassion. And yet when it comes to Jesus' call to trust Him with your sex life or to be generous with the money He has given you, His word becomes an afterthought. Some of us are great at seeking God when it comes to our education and our career. We know what it's like to get on our knees and say, Lord, have my career, have my future. And yet when it comes to church or when it comes to the call of community and building deep and meaningful relationships, God isn't there. God is a part of your life. He doesn't have all of your life. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he be not everything, he is nothing to you. As we walk through this series, 
I want you to be asking, what would it look like to put God first? As we assess the rubble, as we reset and reestablish our life, what would it look like for you to rebuild with God reigning supreme at the center? Right? And these are questions we can ask one another. But let me encourage you to go first to God, to ask Him, Lord, what would it look like for me to reorder my life around you? Remember that prayer of David? Search my heart, O Lord. Test it, examine it. See if there is any offense within it. Lead me now, Lord God, in the way of everlasting life. You imagine if we lent into that? God longs to be preeminent, supreme, sovereign. Not only because he is worthy of all our praise, but because he is good. Third and final observation. The rebuild is going to require your heart and your hands. The rebuild is going to require your heart and your hands. Check verse 5 out. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Right? So throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's clear that God's hand of sovereignty is at work. He's stirring the hearts of the king. He's stirring the hearts of God's people. And yet, please don't miss Israel's part and responsibility, right? They had a choice in this moment. Will I suppress God's word? Will I silence his spirit? Will I sit on my hands and, and ignore this call to rise up and be part of the renewal, to be part of the rebuild? What we see in Ezra is that they heard this call and they responded with obedience. They rolled up their sleeves and they said, yes, Lord, I trust you and I'll go wherever you call me to go and I'll be part of what you want me to be part of. And significantly, if you cast your eyes over to verse two, you'll see that Ezra goes into great detail to write the names of every family, every servant, every priest who joined the rebuild. Verse 64, he says, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 200 male and female singers. Woo, yeah. <laughs> their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Why does Ezra name and count every man, woman, and donkey? Because everyone matters to God and everyone is going to be required to be part of the rebuild. Let me just say that again, just to make sure you're awake. Everyone is loved by God, known by God. Everyone matters to God and everyone is required to be part of the fulfillment of his promise. The restoration 
the rebuild. And, and, and this is significant, particularly when you look back on the, the early stages of the Old Testament and the promises of God, right? Because God had declared this huge vision for Abraham, had he not? Right? You're, you're going to have this generation of descendants, so many that there's like stars in the sky, more than the lights here in, in Hoyts, like stars going to fill the sky, and that's going to be the, the picture of your descendants, it's going to be huge, and Israel's going to stand as a light to the nations. And so then we see under Moses and then Joshua the formation of the 12 tribes and, and the beginnings of this fulfillment as thousands and thousands are part of this nation, this family of God. And yet when you come to the book of Ezra, after a time of exile, idolatry, and war, Israel are small in number. Ten of the 12 tribes, are little, they're gone. Israel are small in number. There is a remnant, a faithful few. Many of their friends and their family have given up on God's word. Many of their friends and family have abandoned God and worshipped other idols. The vast majority of Israel at this time in history are gone. And yet here they are, small in number, entrusting themselves to a great and powerful God. Many of you will know that I was overseas recently and I was part of a uh, cohort of uh, pastors looking at the contemporary issues facing the church today. And, and it was really fascinating was, was talking with these pastors and then looking at the research together and just recognizing that across the globe, uh, obvious point, it's been incredibly challenging, not just for culture and communities, but indeed the church, right? So the issues of political division, racial division, throw in a match called COVID-19, and, and there has just been rapid change and, and disruption, and that has had huge impact on the church. People have been isolated, people are separated, people have been divided, and as part of this, it was clear that across the board, almost all churches saw a dramatic drop-off in people coming together in worship. You know, less people are attending Sunday services, less people serving in volunteer teams, less people part of the mission, less people giving. By and large, most churches, particularly of large churches, have seen upwards of a third of their members not return. Right? That, that's true across the planet. And I appreciate there are many reasons for this. A lot of people didn't want to come back because of health reasons, nervous of being around other people. Other people found it more conven convenient to, to log on online. Right? That's great. I'll give a little shout out right now. Right? Uh, uh, a whole bunch of different reasons. Right? And then, of course, a lot of people just moved, particularly in Melbourne. Right? Literally hundreds of people moved into state or moved overseas or moved out to, to rural or coastal areas. So, so what does all that mean? It means that for a lot of churches today, you and I, we're among the remnant. We're among the remnant. Think about that. And I know for some, that's, that's a cause for concern. I know for a lot of pastors, there's, there's a lot of frustration in that and disappointment in that. But here is where I find great hope. Because as is the case with the remnant of Israel, so, 
The remnant of God's church today is marked by resolve and commitment. Resolve and commitment. You are here. You have not given in. You have not given up. Inspired by the Spirit, set on Christ, you are here because you want to be part of the renewal. Mark Sayers is a, a friend of mine. We actually went to the same primary school. Montalbert Primary went to the same primary school. And uh, he has gone on to write a number of really, really helpful books about culture and the church. Uh, he wrote a book called The Disappearing Church. Uh, thankfully, he went on to write another book called The Appearing Church. Well, actually, The Reappearing Church, it's called. And anyway, he asked this question, really good. He says, what if the rise of secularism is good news for the church? For decades, we Westerners set our hopes on technology, politics, and the appearance of peace. We wanted to believe we were healed, headed somewhat better, that progress was happening. But now, as our technology ensnares and isolates us, our politics threaten to tear us apart, the mass violence becomes alarmingly normative, people are understandably distressed. But throughout history, these periods of decline traditionally precede powerful spiritual renewal and even revival. What if all the bad news in this world is actually good news for the church? What if this moment is the beginning of something extraordinary? What if God has you and me exactly where we need to be? What if God is going to use his remnant to bring about a genuine and true and lasting renewal? Last weekend um, was a huge gift and blessing. Enter the waters of baptism, beautiful day in Melbourne, across all of our churches, as I mentioned, 30 men and women celebrating the new life and love they have in Jesus. These are men and women who are saying, you know what? I want to put God first. And I'm going to declare that. What God has done in me, I want to declare. Uh, one of the guys who took the plunge is, is Joshua. Uh, we'll hear from him, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. Love his heart, love his passion, love his joy, love his desire to put God first. And he says this. He said, God loves me unconditionally. And I've always truthfully and honestly vowed to love and have faith in God always and unconditionally. My bond with God and Jesus will never be broken. God is everything to me. Life has had its ups and downs, but God is always there every step of the way to listen to me, to guide me, to teach me, to comfort me. Isn't that beautiful? This is the good news of the gospel. This is what God has come in Christ to establish in your life. Just as the Lord stirred the hearts of his people in Israel, so God is setting our, stirring our hearts right now. And he wants to give you and me a vision. A vision of a day where he is central and first and our highest good, our joy and our glory. You know, we celebrate all that God has done, but here and now our eyes are set on the horizon ahead. And I see a church 
It's stepping out in faith to serve God's people, to care for the poor, to stand for light and truth and justice. I see a church that's loving one another, building authentic relationships, serving in times of need, being there to comfort, correct, and encourage. I see a church where the Word of God is is declared faithfully, with boldness and truth, not just here on a Sunday from me, but in the everyday moments of life, that as you gather in gospel communities and catch up one-to-one, you've got the Word of God at the center and you're trusting God's promise, knowing that He's good. I see a church that is unashamed of the gospel, that no matter the pressures we face, we can say, Jesus is my highest good, my Lord, my Savior, my all. And as the gospel fills our life, it fills the streets. And as we look to the future, we're going to see, Lord willing, hundreds of people celebrating new life in Him. Maybe they're your friends, your family. Maybe they're your work colleagues, your neighbors. God longs to bring renewal. God longs for us to hear His call. God longs that we'd step out in faith and be part of what He is doing. Right, Just as Israel needed to roll up their sleeves and say, all right, we're going to trust the Lord in this. We're going to step out in faith. We're going to be part of the rebuild. So I want you to know and hear throughout this series the call to be involved. How can you be praying towards renewal? How can you be giving towards the rebuild? How can you lean in to your gospel community or join a gospel community or start a gospel community because you know and value the life that God wants to bring? How can you roll up your sleeves and say, you know what, I could serve. Where do you need me? What can I do? There are so many ways we're going to discover throughout this series the call. Let's be part of this together. Let's mark a new moment. Let's arise and rebuild. We're going to respond now in song. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Would you stand with me as we do that? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Would you, by the power of your spirit, stir our hearts right now? Meet us, inspire us, and help us to be a people who would center our lives first and foremost on you. And we long, Lord, that as we fix our gaze on Christ, you would show us the many ways that we can be part of your story in this world. We know that there are more chapters to be written. We know that this city is not yet finished. Use us, we pray. Take our hearts and our hands and help us to pour ourselves out as a living sacrifice to you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.